All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan and Josh. Hello, everyone. And Marcelo. Hello, everyone. And we have a very special guest. We have our first actual lawyer, uh, one of our good friends back from the good old undergrad days, Justin Hilliard. Howdy, howdy. It's good to have you on. Okay, I just noticed he's got Esquire in his credentials. I love it. <laughs> uh, I earned that. It, it, you did. No, Ryan, the, you, you think the moment after I don't get the results back that uh, for my thesis um, defense that I'm not putting MA on my email <laughs> signature, you're wrong. I totally am. Uh, no, I'm going to be uh, I love it. I love it. Okay, so today we're going to cover the leak of the SCOTUS majority opinion. Uh, that was leaked out about, like, what, what a week ago now? or It was between the last time that we did a segment and now. So we're going to go ahead and talk about that. But we're really going to focus on, like, the precedent. We're going to talk about the legal implications, which is why we have Justin on here with us. And before we get going, remember that you can help our show quickly and easily by liking, subscribing to our YouTube channel, and turning on those notifications so that you know when we go live. And also give us a quick follow at Between the Liars on all of our socials. Usually we plug our hosts, but uh, Justin doesn't have any socials. He he lives, I mean, virtually off grid. So. Yeah, a bit of a light, but in the best way possible. Yes. This so, is a very unique opportunity then it, it, uh, for us to, to have it. <laughs> It is. So Justin graduated from uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville with his law degree. He's passed the bar, officially credentialed, gets to wear the whole Esquire with pride. Uh, Justin, for our audience that doesn't know, what is your like specific legal expertise? Like, What's your focus when you practice? Yeah. So uh, I'm currently working at a firm where I do uh, general sessions and circuit criminal law that you know involves basic things from DUI, simple possession, up to, you know, uh, more, you know, difficult things, homicides, rapes, things like that. Our firm has covered all of those and many, many more. And then I'm also covering family law and juvenile law. So divorces, uh, termination of parental rights, DNNs, actual juvenile cases, and all of that good stuff. But my actual education and my specialization in law school, I was doing advocacy and antitrust. I wrote my graduation paper on the uh, antitrust implications of app stores. Wow. Very, very, very well-rounded then. Uh, <laughs> so before we get in, uh, Justin, you got anything you need to or want to say before we get started with this segment? It's like, of course, I'm a lawyer. I, of course, I have disclaimers. <laughs> well, I got to ask. <laughs> so I, I'm a licensed attorney in the state of Tennessee, but that doesn't mean I'm your attorney. I am not your attorney unless you hire me at the firm Please do not take this as legal advice. It is not. This is general discussion of the, the the theories and the general ideas behind these cases. I'm not telling you this is how you need to do it. I'm telling you this is the way, the reason why the court decides things this way and give you kind of a, a look into a, an attorney's mind as dangerous as that might be. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame the start of this discussion by reading two sections from Alito's majority draft that was leaked. And then I'll turn it over to probably Justin, but I mean, anybody who's got thoughts, obviously jump in as this is a discussion. Okay, so here and now I am quoting, we do not pretend to know how our political system or society will respond to today's decision overruling Roe and Casey. And even if we could foresee what will happen, we would have no authority to let knowledge influence our decision. We can only do our job, which is to interpret the law, apply longstanding principles of stare decisis, and decide this case accordingly. 
We therefore hold that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey must be overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion must be returned to the people and their elected representatives. That'll frame one portion. Uh, Here is the second part. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to uh, heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our democracy by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. End quote. Go ahead. All right. So that this entire opinion and the way that this is happening is based on a long line of cases all the way back to the beginning of the country and the writing of the Constitution, specifically going back to some of the incorporated rights and the non-incorporated rights in the Constitution itself. The Constitution has enumerated rights for the people. You know, you have in the Bill of Rights, you know, your right to freedom from unreasonable search and seizures. You have your due process in the Fifth Amendment. You have your Eighth Amendment rights. And then that got expanded after the Civil War with the Reconstruction Amendments, specifically the 14th Amendment and its due process clause, which has been used to bring in more rights to the individual at the state level as opposed to just the federal level. And some of those rights that we have now were not cognized at that time. They were thought of, but not pinned down in opinions that denote that people have these rights. Like the right to privacy is the main underpinning of all these decisions. In in the Constitution, there is no dedicated right to privacy. You have the freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, but that doesn't say they can't be snooping in your things. They just can't use that stuff against you under the exclusionary exception. They can't you have your due process rights under the Fifth Amendment to be able to uh, have your day in court, but that doesn't mean that you are immune from other probes from the government into your private life. And it was an amalgamation of pulling the, the underlying threads of those amendments and where they came from and the policy implications and how they've been applied to make that right to privacy. And that was, if I'm remembering correctly, that was originally kind of noted in Griswold v. Connecticut. That was a a contraceptive case where the court said that the, the government basically doesn't have the right to tell you how to live your life in that way, that you have a right to privacy and that it's an overstep of government power to enact that and force you to either not take contraceptives because they think it's morally wrong. And that kind of gets into the reasoning in the issue behind Roe. Roe was a lawsuit from an anonymous woman, Jane Roe, in Texas against uh, the, I think he was the county commissioner or something, or the health commissioner of Houston County and they they had unduly regulated and said abortion is you know completely illegal except for the life of the mother and the supreme court saw that as 
an overstep, just like in Griswold, where you have the right to make your own personal medical decisions up to a point. And Roe had the kind of three divisions in three trimesters. The first trimester, the woman has, you know, most uh, options. If she were wanting to get an abortion, she would be able to, and the government wouldn't be able to in, interfere with that in the first trimester. The right of your privacy outweighs the public interest right to uh, protect a potential life at that point. In the third trimester, that it's the opposite because the fetus is almost viable at that point and you are having to, again, do this balancing act and that's just the way the court decided to do it at that time. It's in some ways somewhat arbitrary that they chose trimesters. They could have chosen, you know, anything really. But the second trimester is a really interesting one. The second trimester is where the rights of the mother and the rights of the potential child are at distinct odds, where it's developed enough that it could become a person, but at the same time, because of medical reasons, some women might not even know that they're pregnant until just about the second trimester. And because of that, you have to, again, weigh and balance the rights to privacy and making medical choices for yourself against the right of the state to protect potential life. Does anyone want to jump in and say anything about all that? Well, I was going to ask you a question uh, just to kind of keep, keep that going. So my understanding is that when Roe v. Wade was decided mm-hmm. by the justices, Yes. They were saying that there is, like you had mentioned a second, there's no explicit outlining of a right to privacy. That was their big deciding factor there. That in the trimester framework was kind of the precedent that was set there. It's yes. it is more implicit. And so they took that and they extrapolated on that. Is that why Alito is saying this was egregiously decided? Because it was they were they were setting it as you have a constitutional right to privacy, but the constitution at the same time doesn't lay that out. Is is that where that's being addressed, you think? I, I think to say that, I think it's more of a political reason why he's saying it that way. That it's, if he was saying the entire implicit right to privacy was poorly decided, that would be a, a massive blow against all sorts of cases that he's written decisions on. It's like, I believe a concurrence that came out in 20... I can't even remember the year, but he, he's written decisions about the right to privacy. This is a political hammer that he's using to say, we don't like abortion and we're trying to find a way to take care of it. It's not the right itself. The right, if he was going after that, he would go after Griswold, which is where the right to privacy, again, was originally written down in the decision. If that's where the issue was, this would be a really different conversation. But they were using that right to privacy in the common law once it was written in Griswold as the basis for deciding Roe. And him saying that they decided it poorly, I think, is more of a personal political statement than an actual legal one. They had clear you know, decisions. They had clear authority to do it. It's been the law of the land for almost 50 years now. So then that that raises an important distinction that I think a lot of times there's this misconception that the Supreme Court or even these decisions are law. 
it, it, which is true, but it's 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 not because the Supreme Court is determining whether a law steps on constitutional rights, but also whether what the precedent should be. Can you help kind of shed some light on how that functions as like law versus precedent? Right. So this goes again back to the role of the court in in our government. They, you know, the basic version, the legislature makes laws, the executive enforces them, and the judiciary interprets them. And all of those branches have kind of moved into the other spaces and encroached on those rights and those abilities to make and enforce. Uh, Marbury versus Madison, the, one of the very first cases, is the basis for uh, judicial review saying we have the final say in being able to talk about these cases and our decision, our interpretation is law unless, you know, the Congress decides to say otherwise, the court has the final say and the only entity that can overturn the court is itself. And that's happened a few times, but normally those have been quite egregious cases where they've uh, had to look back like Plessy v. Ferguson is a famous uh, segregation case where they said separate but equal is okay. Brown v. Board overturned that saying separate but equal is inherently unequal, which it is. Um, but the court often tries to keep the decisions on the books for stability's sake. That goes into stare decisis. Let this let the decision stand. The court acts much less as a political entity or has acted much less as a political entity than the other branches of government. They're appointed by, uh, they're recommended by the executive, then they're confirmed by the Senate. They don't have to run in elections. They have a lifetime appointment. They're not concerned with the day-to-day -day political grind as much as more elected representatives are. And that's how it should be. You're supposed to insulate the court so that they're not influenced by political whims of the time. But at the, at the same time, the court is a political entity, and it has to be. The judges have to interpret the law in a specific way. They can't just say this is good or this is bad without having reasons and principles behind it. And depending on what your principles are and what you think the function of laws in our society are determines how you see things. You know, more uh, conservative justices see, you know, if it's not written down, then why should I care about it? And that's a, you know, that kind of a textualist uh, basic uh, constitutionalist idea uh, is a, you know, a well-established view that many justices have had. But on the other end, you have to see what is the purpose of the Constitution and the, the provisions in it. Is it just for the ends of the, the sentence itself? Do the, do the semicolons and the commas, are, are they the end-all be-all, or is it the idea of what was written into the Constitution and why it was made that way, you know, our, our founding fathers were very wise and thoughtful people, but they weren't perfect. And to, I think, put too much emphasis on exact wording is un, unduly narrows your perspective in a lot of ways. That's personal opinion. But 
get, getting back to uh, the, the role of the court, the court has, again, kind of created these rights in the common law where they look at, you know, these things in society and pull these threads, again, from the Fourth Amendment. Why would you need an, a protection from unreasonable searches and seizures unless that happened? And is that not a violation of privacy? It would be, even if, again, the, the evidence is thrown out later in court, that's still a violation of your personal privacy. And the, the court at that time understood that and applied that to the Roe situation as that there is a public health interest and then there is a private per, or yeah, a private uh, integrity interest, so to speak, that they have their interest in their own privacy. So then I think that transitions us a bit into the next time the Supreme Court heard an abortion-related case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And yes. I'll let you kind of describe what, what was the premise of that case and, and what was decided there. So Casey was an extension of Roe, and Casey happened 20-ish years later. They And at that time, with the framework that they had put out in Roe, it was broad and gave leniency in a lot of ways to the states to be able to, to construct laws. So again, first trimester, couldn't touch it. Third trimester, they can do what they want. But in the second trimester, that's when they started putting regulations into place to make it more difficult in a lot of circumstances. Not many places made it easier, but a lot of places made it more difficult. Specifically in Casey, they were having a 24-hour notice so you couldn't just walk into a clinic and I want an abortion right now. You'd have to put in a you know bylaw in Pennsylvania. You had to go in, make your appointment, wait for a day, and then show up and get that procedure done. Secondly, uh, for minors, you need the consent of at least one parent to make sure that you know. I'm sure they had their reasons of the, to protect you know potential life from. Uh, an underage person that you know might not understand the consequences of what they're doing, but they also included a judicial bypass. So even if the the parents disagree, the the court they have they have options. And then lastly, and the one that was overturned as being unduly burdensome, was the requirement to inform your spouse that you were getting an abortion. And at that time, that was you know, how do you prove that? That, that just, you know, sign a paper and bring it into the abortion clinic and then, you know, get sued about it later if it isn't notarized and this and that. But the court, again, re-examined Roe. And as opposed to the first time, Roe was 72 and this time it was 5v4. The court definitely took a swing to the right in that time. And when this was decided, the framework was much, much shakier. It was less stable. Yes, they had reaffirmed Roe, and it was, you know, stare decisis is still standing. The decision is still, you know, the law of the land. They interpreted it in a role. I don't want to say rolled it back, but they were able to narrow the reading and say these are the types of things that are acceptable, and these are the types of things that are not. These are the types of things that would be unduly burdensome to somebody that's seeking an abortion, while these types of things are 
in the interest of the state to protect a potential life and stop rash or you know reactionary behavior and because of that the the states have been reacting and waiting for Roe and Casey to, to both be overturned and to, uh, like Alito was saying, to have the decision punted back to the states, where many states on the on the books right now have laws that say, if Roe's overturned, abortion's illegal, effective immediately. I live in one of those. The second this decision comes through, abortion across Mississippi will be entirely illegal. You will have no other option to seek an abortion other than to go north into another state. Yeah, I had a conversation with my students about that. It was, it was, it was a pretty hard talk. It was pretty hard for them, pretty hard for uh, a lot of you know a lot of the younger people dealing with, you know with thing um, with uh, challenges, and especially since you know college students are, are a majority uh, young women. A lot of them feeling a lot you know a lot a lot more disenfranchised and a lot less safe and a lot less secure. Um, cause there's a grand old saying of, um, making a, abortion illegal doesn't stop abortion and only stops safe abortions. And yeah, that, that gets into, again, public policy about this decision and the, the type of reason why it's being decided this way. The court is making this a political action, I think above anything else. It's not about the decision itself. Well, it is about the decision, but it's more about sending a message to say that this is how we're going to do things. And this is how we're principled and how this is, we're going to do things. And, you know, that is damaging to not just the country, but to the court in a way that I think is short-sighted on Alito's part, that the prestige of the court is being damaged and it again is being pulled more into the realm of a political entity again the court has always been political but it's been insulated and now they're being directly influenced and impacted by the political fervor of the time and i think to to even though in the decision or in the draft decision i know he he mentioned other cases that are safe can you really, you know, believe that? Can you really accept that when they've taken this law, they've taken this decision that's been at the base of our, you know, privacy right, one of our most base privacy rights, and throwing it out the window? And you have to, when you see decisions like that, you have to pause and think what other rights, what other cases that are you know landmark as far as our rights are concerned where do they stand where does gideon v wainwright stand you know do you have the right to an attorney anymore do you have the right to uh you know not be harassed by the police do you have the right to uh voice your opinions in a way that the government might not like or are they going to be able to quash that so on, on that note, let's let's talk about the 14th Amendment. Uh, let's start with Justin, just kind of break down what that is, and then we can talk about how that's been applied. Because that was, aside from stare decisis, 14th Amendment is usually like the thing that's like, this is, we are, this is our reasoning, or it was the, the court's reasonings mm -hmm. as to why this should be applied 
unilaterally across and, and unanimously, uh, uniformly across all of the states. Right. So the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, one of the post-Civil War, the Reconstruction Amendments. And specifically, we are looking towards the due process clause. Due process, in so many words, says for, you know, justice to be done, you have to have this process and be able to enact these these provisions to make sure that justice be done. That, that's a very broad general reading of due process, but that that is basically what it says. Do you, do you want to? I would, I would toss in um, and then uh, equal protection clause as well with, with the 14th. Yes, yes. The Equal Protection Clause is very important, but I, if I'm remembering correctly, Roe was not decided on equal protection. But it is an which is really which which is just a little comical uh, to, uh, to me of regulating one uh, sex's um, medical ability and not the others isn't considered an equal protection under the law issue is really funny to me because there's no law against getting a you know a vasectomy and preventing myself from ever having children yet we regulate women's you know uh, uh you know w- women's fertility so to me this feels like it should be an equal protection of the law of being, of being like listen we only pass reproductive laws targeted at women where's the where's the equal protection like come on people right and Again, that's part of the ideology in the blinders on the justices at the court, that they have their ways they want to get decisions decided. It, I, I can't say for, for certain, but there have been many cases that I've read where it seems like they come to their conclusion and find reasons afterwards. I'm not saying that happened here. That has happened, you know, in more boring types of cases and more civil procedure type cases where they decide, you know, this is our pleading standard and, you know, we'll find a way to get there. But as far as due process, due process specifically, again, is about being able to incorporate the rights of the federal government down to the states. And most of those have been case by case. You have to incorporate them case by case. I, again, I, I know I, I mentioned to Ryan that the right to bear arms, the Second Amendment, was only codified in McDonald v. Chicago, and that was a 20 or 2011 or 2009 case. That was, you know, this century before that right was formally brought down from the federal government and incorporated to the individual. And that happened with the, the common law right to privacy through that Griswold case. And because of the 14th Amendment, we've been able to pull out these rights out of the, the ether, these things that we feel, you know, it's unjust that the government can say this or tell us that we can't do this or whatnot, and be able to codify them and bring them down in a way that a law in a specific state would be less far-reaching. Yeah, because I think that's the other you know, a uh, big concern. And, and it's also another part of, well, so we you know, kind of brought up the 14th's protection, uh, you know, equal uh, protection under the law, is for the example of like in Mississippi, there will now be Americans who will have access to um, fertility care very readily, 
with no restrictions, no problems, you know. And then there will be a lot of Americans who will not. And while there are a lot of the a lot of laws that are not consistent state by state, of course, there's always going to be that way when our government starts entangling itself with metaphysics and ontological beliefs about the nature of life and humanity, then having state-by-state decision-making has never, and I will repeat, has never ended well. Because the only thing I ever hear when I hear the phrase states' rights is back to where that debate originated, and it always makes me want to scream, states' rights to what? Tell me what one singular political issue appeared in every single letter of succession. They all had ones that didn't include that that didn't include um, that, that that had other reasons, but every single one mentioned one particular thing of why they left the union. So states' rights to what? Um, when we let the, the, the individual state governments, you know, regulate human rights, I think you always end up in a really bad situation because we, the federal government should never allow some state government to essentially set itself up as a totalitarian theocracy. Like, we should not allow states to become that way. And that was what the 14th Amendment is also there to do, of, of being like, hey, you know, these basic universal human rights are guaranteed regardless of where you live inside of the United States. Um, so your state's not allowed to infringe upon them in the, you know, in this particular, you know, in, in these ways. And that's why I mentioned like, it's a case by case thing of like, you know, you have to have, whatever the, whatever the, the legal terminology is, you have to show harm to bring, to bring the case. Like you have to be infringed upon and, you know, and so that is why these rights come down, by, you know, case by cases, the government has to commit a foul, then you sue them. And then the Supreme Court says, no, this is, you know, you're, you know, you're right. And I mean, that's one of the, the standing standing is what standing. you're looking okay. for. And you have to have been grievanced to be able to bring a case uh, because otherwise people would be able to litigate anything and everything forever until the end of time. And that is a waste on the court's resources, time and energy when their dockets are already full. And that's one of the things that uh, Roe actually decided that we didn't touch on is the mootness. They have to have certain parameters in place to be able to, to determine if you have standing. And one of the bars to it is mootness. If uh, you're deciding whether the government has the right to take this property from you and you've already sold it, you don't have standing because you don't have a dog in the fight anymore. But Roe, they allowed Roe to be decided because even though I believe at that point she wasn't pregnant anymore, they said that it is a constant and reoccurring uh, harm in our society that would not be heard unless they decided to take it. And again, the court is able to, in some ways, wave its hands and make make those decisions and say, yeah, we'll hear it to make a decision because that's what they politically wanted to do, not because necessarily it was the most strict reading of the standing requirements. But the, the court, again, is a difficult entity to hammer down sometimes. They, unlike the, the Congress where 
a lot of times the, the representatives are motivated by their desire to get reelected, to look for the constituents, to get funding for their district and other miscellaneous projects they have going on. It, there are many more people and it's much more difficult to get things done unless you're at the top of the party on both sides, on both sides. It's not a, a left or a right issue. It is a, there is a mob of people and you have to convince at least a majority of them to vote for your thing. And the way to do that is I scratch your back, you scratch mine. But in the court, there's nine justices and they are all able to individually write their own opinions, whether it be a dissent, concurrence, or concur and dissent, which has happened. And those cases are messy because it makes the decisions difficult to, to really render when you have you know, a majority decision written by three of the justices, like what happened in Casey, in having two concurrences and four dissents, or I think it was two dissents in Casey. But to have that politically and ideologically divided of a court makes it difficult to really know exactly when and where those things will stand in the future, because as we're seeing right now, they're challenging it for a third time, and it's in the hands of the justices at this point, and there's nothing anyone can do except potentially go to the Senate and make it a federal law. And at that point, they would have a much more hard, much more difficult time to uh, bounce that around, but I'm sure they would still try. So that, that actually raises an interesting question, because as soon as this was leaked, mm-hmm. the Democrats were talking about trying to codify it into mm-hmm. law at the national level. Now, they don't have the votes. They're not going to get them. But let's right. just let's just play a, a thought game for a second. If you had enough votes in the U.S. Senate to pass a federal law codifying Roe versus Wade, what what would that do to this decision? And like, would would it just be overruled because it's now in violation as the courts have now interpreted the law, or what what would happen? Right. So, as it stands, the current decision would be taking away the right bestowed by Roe and Casey, which is an extension of the privacy right. It wouldn't impact something codified because the codification is its own leg to stand on that it's, it's a somewhat difficult thing to think about. But if you think about it as like the, the written codified law is the floor and you can extend that out. Whereas the, the case law is more akin to like a patio where you can add more boards and have a longer patio and you can take them away as cases are decided and overruled. But once you have that floor, unless you have that law repealed or struck down by the court, then you you really have much more sturdy ground to stand on. And this gets more to the court. There are justices on the court now that even if it was codified would still try to knock it down and strike it down. But... I think even some of the justices that decided and put their names on this decision that would be voting this way would be less swayed if it was actually codified 
and would be much more of a swing vote in that, depending on how it was written and what exactly that law said. So the, the patio is a good example, and I think that helps, except for there's one instances where I, th- I think that it's a little bit difficult for me to wrap my mind around it. So, mm-hmm. and, and this might boil down to the question of, is it determined based off of the opinion or off of what the law or like the precedent that's been struck down? Because in the opinion, Alito says that this needs to be returned to the states. So if the federal government passes one, then you've got an argument between who gets to determine that as the states, the federal government, right? So that's dicta. So okay. there's... In, in Supreme Court decisions, again, this draft decision is 90, 95, 98 pages, something like that. It's long, yeah. <laughs> it's a very long opinion, and not all of it is pressing law. The, the actual legal component can be condensed down into maybe a page or two, maybe a three. Okay. The rest of it is conjuncture about the nature of why. And standing. And, and, of course, standing is always important. But uh, no, no, like, as in he was p- politically grandstanding. Like, grandstanding. He, he's uh, <laughs> eloquating to the public in this decision. Yes. Uh, that, he thinks this will be his legacy. Yeah, that that is very true. In addition to standing, because they always have to address standing, they this is, again, very much a political soapbox. And to be able to say that, you know, these are the reasons, this is why we believe this, this is why we believe that, you know, Roe was poorly decided and, that it doesn't have, you know, the ideological backing to be, you know, the law of the land. It they that is dicta. That is them saying, you know, this is why we believe this, but actually condensing the legal precedent down to a few pages. It wouldn't include sending it back to the states. I think that's again part more of his political ideology and belief in the Ninth Amendment, Tenth Amendment. The, the one that sends, you know, all non-enumerated rights Trump, yeah, Trump. back to the oh, state. Yeah. Tenth Amendment, yeah. Tenth Amendment, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're, yeah. They're all, it's a little confusing when you've read them all so many times. Well, and that's fair. But also, like, as you try to get these to work together, it becomes really difficult because yes. the Tenth Amendment is where I think that these would clash, right? Because if the constitutional amendment says that all powers not given to the federal governments expressly go to the states— Mm-hmm. then the states are going to argue that these are our rights because, you know, the right to abortion is not specifically granted to the federal government. So this law impedes on our and, – and so therefore our law is restricting abortion or honestly even going beyond and expanding those rights on abortion should take precedent. How do you so, think that would play out with the courts I guess is my next question. That is a interesting way to, to talk about it and this gets into a bit of the back and forth that it – that has happened between states and the federal government. And the immediate inclination that I have is that federal government's going to win supremacy clause. Supremacy clause says they have the right to, you know, their the federal law is the law of the land. The state laws have to coincide and fall in line with it. If there is a discrepancy, then they're going to hash it out in court and the courts are going to decide. That has happened numerous times and most uh i think one of the most uh, well-known examples of that is current drug laws in states like uh colorado and washington uh people have a constitutional right in those states under their state constitution to have access to cannabinoids but it's illegal on the federal level granted the, the department of justice hasn't fought that they they know it's a losing battle 
they don't want to put the time and the energy and the resources into it because they they know it's just not going to pan out the way they want it to. But, so but, they yeah, but, go. but it is an interesting point to help like make clear of like how sometimes these things play out of like, you know, in Washington, you know, and all, all these legalized states, medical marijuana or recreational marijuana are all still federally illegal. All of these dispensaries could at any moment have the DEA show up and knock, knock at their door and say, hi, you know, we're arresting you for a massive you know, amount of drugs you have in your possession. Right. But as, as Justin pointed out, um, it, it, it's, it's a waste of resources and it, it also would send a not, you know, great you know, message from like the federal, you know, government, you typically only use force like that to bring the states back into line over very serious matters uh, because deploying the DEA like that would really be, you know, like if, 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 you know, say, you know, I think Obama was president when Colorado legalized. Um, like if Obama had sent a memo to the DOJ and said, raid every single dispensary in, in uh, Colorado until they all stop working, would have caused, you know, a very bad tension between, the, you know, the federal government and the states. Um, but that's also why, you know, it, it, it gets into the, you know, the variants of issues of, oh, these people want to have this, you know, intoxicant, you know, okay. Um, it's not a particular claim about someone's, you know, rights or someone's, you know, status as a legal entity. It is, you know, whether or not your state wants to prohibit a particular substance or not. And mm-hmm. that's a very, you know very common and useful and, you know, needed things at, at that time. Uh, so, and, and so that's why, you know, you get these differences of, you know, on the smaller issues, yeah, the federal government's not going to put up an issue on it. But, you know, when when the states wouldn't comply with, you know, desegregating the schools, we sent the military, the, the, the actual National Guard military to go enforce federal law when the states won't comply. That's how it plays out at, at, at the end of the game. The federal government makes a decision, you, you, um, and if it's a serious enough, you know, reason, the federal government will use, you know, might makes right. Uh, how America's always operated. So yes, I mean that that opens the door for a lot of conversations and discussions about the 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 role of the government in our society and what it is, and I think this is kind of pulls back to one of the most basic ideas and the basic idea of how uh, of the political founding of America based on John Locke and, you know, his state of nature where people are free to do what they want as long as they're not infringing on the rights of others. And the government sets to balance those rights against each other. You know, I have the right to go, you know, walk in the park, but I can't go walk on somebody else's land because that infringes on their property rights to exclude trespassers. And when does that become, you know, a trespass on your own body? I think that kind of gets back to the political underpinnings and the ideological underpinnings of the abortion issue in general of how far does the government have the right to tell you what you can do with your body one way or the other, whether it be, uh, for abortion, for medically necessary abortion, for a morally repugnant abortion, such as uh, abortion in the case of uh, incest or rape. And some people say, you know, all abortion is wrong and they have no leeway 
and they have no context further than their base, you know, portion is long. So the Mississippi case, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization, I think is what that was titled. But that that is what has brought this to light. Do we think <laughs> this opinion stands, let's say, it goes through and it's overturned. And then if every time the states impede on the citizens with, with the abortion laws, and this is going to cut both ways, I think, because there will be people in blue states um, – who are trying to say that it's too loose of restriction. People in red states will say that it's too restrictive. Are we just going to see a lot of these cases keep like just the, the same thing going to the Supreme Court then because it's slightly different? Do you think this would like stand? Like how, how does that work? What, what is the triggering mechanism there other than like standing and the court deciding we want to hear this case? So the court always has the final decision to grant cert or not. And my guess at that point the current court would not grant cert on any of those cases and just let them hash themselves out and say, this is our decision, figure it out yourselves and let the the federal appeals courts deal with it. And Mississippi, I think, is in the the 10th judicial district or the 13th. I can't remember. Yeah, I have no idea. You could go with it and none of us would ever know. <laughs> right. And I live here. Like, right. I, I know the big ones. I know, you know, uh, Tennessee's in the sixth. I know California's in the ninth. I know New York's in the second. Um, but some of the other ones I'm just a little fuzzy on. But they're going to bounce it to that appeals court, and then they're going to have a circuit split. And the ninth circuit is definitely going to have one ruling on a lot of these issues, and the other circuits are going to have very different rulings, and they're going to be pushing on the court, and they just won't budge. That's my guess is that, again, this is a political maneuver it's not a clarification. It is a deconstruction of abortion in a way that they just want to wipe their hands of it. So what, what do we think, legally speaking, this, this new ruling means? Like Going forward, how do we think this is going to play out? I guess the number one question that comes to my mind is, if it goes through, are the states who are in favor of no restrictions on abortion going to pull an Andrew Jackson and just say the courts made their decision, let's see them enforce it, and they just do it anyway? Well, well the, the court didn't ban abortion. Um, they no, just it, banned your, I mean, so California's, you know, planning on, like, codifying the, you know, the rights because, but yep. there's also nothing in California's books right now that says abortion is illegal in the first place. Right. So, you, so when this opinion comes down, nothing will change for the, the citizens of California. No, blue um, states will remain blue. They'll have abortions. Red states will not. I guess maybe let me tailor my question. In the red states, are you just going to have Planned Parenthoods that are like, well, we're just going to do this anyway? Oh, for sure. They were doing that before Roe v. Wade. They were getting yep. assassinated. Um, uh, they were getting assassinated over um, over Roe v. Wade, even before this new decision in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, where Justin, you got y'all, and that's where I grew up. I grew up in Jefferson City, next to Carson Newman. They oh. shot bullets into the Planned, pa- Planned Parenthood there. They firebombed the Planned Parenthood there. If that was was, was that not if. Uh, if that wasn't earlier this year, it, that was last year, where a Planned Parenthood so. got firebombed in Knoxville, Tennessee, and gunshots went through it earlier in the year, bef- uh, in that same kind of year time frame. So, like, 
I'm sure that the, the you know, in, in the same way of all campaigns for when, you know, they beat and berate civil rights protesters in the 60s and assassinated and murdered them. They beat and berate and assassinated and murdered queer protesters during the queer rights movements. Um, they, you know, continue to beat, harass, murder, and assassinate ab- abortion um, providers. They did that when it was illegal before. They did it when it was legal now. Um, and I assume the conviction that people deserve health care will drive a lot of these doctors um, to keep providing services until either a mob with their burning crosses and torches or the police and the badges come and drag them. Yeah, that, that's the basic idea that the state has their monopoly on violence and that they're going to use that to justify their own whims. And if they, you know, if you're still doing abortions as a medical provider, they'll take your license, they'll throw you in jail, they'll tar and feather you if they could. Some states are are, are seeking um, a death penalty for providing an abortion. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, um, and and I think it's uh, I think it's Idaho, oh, and I think it's Idaho is currently working on a law that is actually going to challenge Griswold. Um, they are working on banning IUDs and um, birth IUDs, controls. Not IUDs. Uh, yeah, I, I, IUDs um, and um, uh, taking estrogen and, uh, and progesterone as birth control. Really curious. Again, there's nothing about condoms on there, so I'm really wonder, wondering where this equal protection clause is. But you know. Um, they're certainly going to ban birth control or Idaho is going to try to ban birth control for women, which will give then the groundings to challenge Gris, you know, Griswold. Um, because even though Alito in this draft opinion says, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, infringe on these cases, I'm not doing, um, in any of these things, given the fact that he lied, that he himself lied during his confirmation hearing to the Senate and the American public, um, there's no reason to believe anything, um, he said in this opinion, especially when he gave the vague wording that road was decided egregiously and it was decided on the privacy uh, principle. And so now states are going to start passing laws that challenge the privacy principle. And then we will come and see the court will rule on the privacy, you know, uh, to what, you know, uh, to what extent that Alito and uh, Trump's justices want to eliminate Americans, uh, you know, right to privacy. Um because the the vague wording sets the ground for new precedent to be built of Roe was decided on egregious grounds. Those grounds were the right to privacy. So we start, you know, so Idaho has this and then the local courts, you know, played out or Mississippi bans. Um, let's say Mississippi does it. Then the Mississippi's uh, um, circuit court even upholds their, you know, I, um, the contraceptive ban and then says, based on the egregious decision uh, uh, used in road that was the right to privacy that decided this as well. And they make that argument, and the Mississippi courts make that argument and send it to the Supreme Court. Like the framework and, and kind of guiding uh, ideas to challenge the right to privacy is written in the cliff notes by Alito in this opinion uh, through and through. And it's, Almost as if the cases where he specifies of, oh, these won't be affected. I almost want to say he was playing a game of like rhetorical contradiction of being like, haha, you all know that all of these cases, um, gay marriage, interracial marriage, uh, interracial marriage, um, you know, right to contraceptives, all of these were decided on the right to privacy. But he calls them all out, but then says uh, they're not in trouble. Just the thing they were all decided on was egregious. 
And, and, and so there's this rhetorical contradiction going on that is setting up the framework to give the to give it you know the argument to say there is no constitutional right to privacy. Um, welcome to wire you know warrantless wiretaps. Enjoy your America. Thanks, Republicans. Liberty. Alito intended this to be a scalpel and to just cut out abortion from the common law, but it's much more of a hammer, and he's just bashing right to privacy and you know knocking abortion away with it, but completely damaging the other case on the the basis of it by rendering and writing the decision the way he did. It is, I think, somewhat, I, I, I agree, I think it's ideologically inconsistent and somewhat dishonest to say that this stuff is not off the table when you just open the door to it. Also, another fun thing about this opinion, and I don't know the exact quote, um, but Alito quotes a guy that one time made a ruling that a man could not rape his wife because that marriage um, uh, 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 signified um, continuing uh, consent. And so this dude, like, either made a statement or ruling like that, and Alito uh, quoted him as part of his justification for this reasoning. And so that is the solid moral ground of, uh, of Alito's philosophy here of philosophers who thought that it is impossible to rape your spouse. Um, oh, wait a minute. The United States actually used to operate that writ large. I wonder <laughs> what the political intentions are. Did, did he quote that like, specific thing or just the same guy? No, it's the same uh, guy. Don't worry. He, he's a trash can full of rest of opinions too. Like the, we're going to have spicy hot takes, Ryan. I hope you know that. <laughs> I mean, I, I expect nothing less. you got to bring your A-game every time. And this this is a contentious issue. I, I didn't really expect them to be mild it's takes. Topic, especially on Mother's Day. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> hey. I, I mean, I, 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 said, I said that in, in, in our group chat. It is fitting we talk abortion on Mother's Day. Yeah. I was accommodating schedules. I didn't just pick Mother's Day out of a hat. That was not an intentional... Uh, thing, but, but okay. Before we go off into the 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 firebomb hot takes, any other thoughts on the 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 what's going to happen? Any projections, conjecture about what this I legal precedent a, will do? I need a Marcelo general take here. I haven't heard a Marcelo take, and I have to have I one have, take. I have been quiet all this. You time. have been. You've been really. I quiet. remember when we were initially drafting the idea of the show last year. I was like, we can talk about any topic you want. Except really bad ones like abortion. Yes. Here we are almost a year later. And, well, I haven't said anything because <laughs> i obviously not a lawyer, obviously not an expert. Um, just being been listening to a lot of stuff. Um, and I think, and you, you'll hear more of this in the hot takes, but I think my thoughts are very much outside of the implications for the court. I really could care less. Really, with the, with the heaviest, really could care less about what it means for the courts. I'm much more worried about what it would mean when this decision finally passes, if it passes it is. I, I guess this could go on hot takes, but I, I'll just say here that I think the implication for the, the court and how this is opening the door to further politi to, uh, political uh, ideation and uh, sway that they get to, that they're being picked up and kind of just throw stare decisis out the window so that they can decide what they want. I think it will swing in both directions and things that you never think would be overturned could be very easily just because why not stare decisis be damned. 
Okay, on, on that note, we are going to be right back with our hot takes. You're listening to the Central Hub for Political Discourse. All right, we're actually taking an actual break each time now because uh, I've moved the announcements towards the end. So, uh, Josh, why don't you tell them a little bit about the memberships, how they can help sponsor the show if they're interested in what they get if they join our Discord channel. That is right. So we have a, our membership program, which you can sign up by finding all of, following through all of the click, clickies on our social media to our website. I mean, you get the access to our Discord, which means usually when um, we're doing the show, also known as when I can act, uh, show up on time, um, we're usually here like 15, 20 minutes before the show starts. You can, like, you're there, you can sit and listen and chat with us while we're doing that. A lot of times we're just sharing stories, catching up, hanging out. Uh, we do the same thing after the show too, and you can be there um, for that as well, as well as have access to the Discord. So if you ever feel like actually just adding me in Discord and asking a question, I will just answer you. Um, like, why not? Like, um, so if you would like, read, if you'd like freely available 24-7 hot takes, um, become a membership and feel free. I will, I will give you my personal guarantee to give you a hot take every time. It's always a good time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's where you get us uh, just... Uh, we, we've had continued conversations. We've had tangent conversations. We've talked about random stuff completely unrelated to whatever we're about to talk to or did talk about. So that's a good time. Uh, <laughs> uh, Marcelo, we don't have new music, but we, you know, we could talk about Andrew. Hey, all music is good music, and especially this music. <laughs> Our intro song and outro song, as always, is courtesy of Andrew Hensley over at Secret Spike Studio, 865 Audio, and his uh, new single. Well, the single title Misty is available on all major platforms, so please check it out. You really shouldn't. He's linked in our in our little link tree drop down. And uh, because I put a lot of work into making these little overlays, I want to go ahead and display those. But uh, yeah, follow us on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you you can stream from our our Facebook page, our YouTube channel. But yeah, if you if you follow us there and uh, you help us get the word out, greatly appreciate it. You can DM us. Uh, everybody has access, but I think I'm usually the only one that's like consistently probably answering the very few questions we get. So if you want to DM me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just message one of our socials. Uh, we love to hear anything from proposed topics. Like, for example, when we talked about the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill, uh, that was a recommendation of one of our followers, Evan. Um, and so we we do take into account the things you want to hear. So we'd love to have you follow us at Between the Liars. And uh, yeah, so that'll be it for our break. And now we're going to go into our actual hot takes. And we're back from not going anywhere. Josh, take it away. So my first hot take is there's no reason to have faith in the court as an institution acting fairly or as a nonpartisan um, agency anymore. It was already on shaky grounds, given the court packing that Mitch McConnell has been playing when it was the tail end of Barack Obama's um, presidency. And not only did he not let Barack Obama fill a Supreme Court uh, position, he blocked 
hundreds of federal court positions from being filled. So that's why whenever uh, one of the things they always like to talk about during Trump's presidency was the number of new federal judges that Trump got appointed and how that was a great achievement of the Trump administration. But the reason none of those judges had been appointed in the years before was because Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republican Senate majority did not um, allow Obama to appoint not just a new Supreme Court justice, but any judge pretty much in the latter half of his uh, presidency. We also could see that there was very very little reason to believe in the integrity of court. The moments the Republicans did a complete 180 roundabout switch when it came to replacing a Supreme Court justice at uh, during an election year of where Mitch McConnell and you know came back and started repeating the Democrats' talking points to them that it is the obligation of the Senate to make sure the court is operating at full capacity. Um, to try to use that as you know more leverage going into the uh, election and rushed through a you know a Supreme Court justice to get what um, the Republican Party wanted and this is one part of what they want um, over you know uh, you know getting rid of abortion rights um, taking away rights from women in general is something that has long been a standard of um, the Republican Party so yeah they've been packing the court, from the appeals court to different circuit courts to the federal courts, you know, to the to the Supreme Court for a long time now. And the policy flip on not confirming a justice during an election year and then confirming a justice during election year to now having a Supreme Court decision that comes out that completely ignores a lot of what we considered to be the standard of the way the courts ought to operate that should operate that keeps the balance of powers in check that keeps the executive and the legislator from overstepping their bounds we have now i will i will uh, go down on this officially lost our ability to say that we have a check on the executive or judicial anymore we now have an extension of whatever the majority party is because precedent doesn't matter um, whatever right was ruled in can just be undone if you can just pack a, you know, expand the Supreme Court, add enough justices to it, and then change the country however you please, because precedent doesn't matter anymore. And so we're put, in, put into, into a position like that. We've talked a lot about the, the dangers and the issues, right, the privacy, and, and, and how I said I think they are, are – setting up challenges to broader social issues that Republicans have been trying to get rid of for a long time. And they are going to use like the same method that they've just, you know, that they've achieved now to um, do so as well with. And when they say they're not going to do that, um, we can look, point and look at them and go liar. And the reason we know they're a liar, because there were five justices, five of these justices, all during their confirmation were asked a question about Roe or Casey, depending on, on when they were confirmed. But I think when Alito was being confirmed that Casey hadn't been ruled upon uh, yet. But Alito was asked about Roe. So so was Thomas. So was um, – and then the three most – the recent um, appointees uh, of Trump's. Each and single one of them said during the confirmation hearing to the United States Senate, to the United States public that they understood that Roe v. Wade and Casey were stand were the standing law of the land and were not something 
that was just to be ideologically overturned. And they lied to us, the American public, and they lied to the senators. I bet it feels real bad to be Susan Collins right now, who basically got a whole gig pulled on her by her entire political party when she voted for Kavanaugh and voted um, for um, uh, Barry. Barry Allen, um, on the promise that this would not happen. And she was lied to by her whole party. And that is how low they are willing to go to gain power and to strip away your rights and take away things to gain for their political agenda. They will lie to their fellow senators, to their very faces, under oath, to get what they want. And that is what the Supreme Court is now. Fantastic. Yay, America. Woo! Freedom. The political court has been unleashed. Their... The, the, the idea of standing of law is questionable, and um, please, for the love of God, eliminate the filibuster. Okay, so I'm going to push back on what Josh says for the start of my hot takes. I mean, court packing distinctly references expanding the courts. Filling vacant positions is not quite the same thing. I think that language is important. And that you can't just use that language. And, and that's been a popular talking point. I'm, I'm not trying to pick just on Josh. But in general, the concept has been Republicans packed the courts. No, the Republicans filled vacancies. And I, I do agree with Josh, 100% political on both sides. I don't think that should be shocking to people because that's what the parties do. And, and it does cut both ways. As far as the justices lying to the courts, basically they said it's stare decisis, which means it's precedent. And precedent is precedent until it's not. I mean, you can even look at slavery was precedent until Brown v. Board, you know, stopped segregation. So justices have the ability to overrule previous precedent. And like, I, I think that that's important to note here. Understandably so, it infuriates half the aisle. And I mean, but like that doesn't mean the justices lied. It doesn't mean that the justices are not doing their job. I think about all you can say from that position is that they didn't do what we hoped they would do, what maybe we thought they said that they would do, or you, you might even try to argue they're not upholding the Constitution. Any of those, hash out those arguments, but I don't think that the idea of, if, if you're going down the road of stare decisis, stare decisis, it becomes an appeal to tradition, a logical fallacy. We've always done it this way. It should never change. Everything we've done since then establishes it as precedent, so it should never be changed. So I, I think that that is the express purpose of the Supreme Court. Uh, my second hot take is going to be that the courts are designed to be independent of public opinion. There's going to be a lot of people who aren't happy with this. And I think that that's why we have the branches of government separated. Um, Justin's point earlier that they've all encroached on each other's territory is 100% correct. But the justices are appointed for this very reason. And it's so that they don't have to be subject directly to the public opinion because their job is to uphold what is constitutional, not what's going to be popular. And in the opinion, if they make the case that this is not constitutional, that's the case that was made. And I think that the purpose of the courts is to make a ruling on legislation independent of public opinion. I think that's really important. Uh, this, this will lead into my third hot take. This is why it's incredibly dangerous that this opinion was leaked. Uh, because it subjects the justices to potentially, if not just being threatened, which we've seen a whole rally of people. There's there's um, a group of individuals who they're calling themselves like uh, Ruth sent us or something like that. But they're, they're supposed to do a walk by outside of they published the justices 
addresses so that they could go out there and make their presence be known. And we'll see how it goes from there. Maybe they'll remain peaceful. But, I mean, it's still an intimidation tactic at that point. They're, they're doing it to present the number of people that are going to be opposed to this. And I think that cuts directly across what I said earlier or against, uh, against because they're not supposed to make this based off of public opinion. I think whoever leaked this, there's speculation as to whether it was a justice, there's speculation as to whether it was someone on the right or the left or a clerk, whoever it was, in my opinion, they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law because they've opened, they've, they violated the contract that they had with the courts. They abused privileged information that they had and this shouldn't be allowed to happen. So my opinion, whenever it comes out, whatever side of the aisle it was, they need to be handled to the fullest extent of the law. Um, and that'll be my last hot take. I, I have two two points that I, I would like to say about Ryan. One, uh, slavery was hit down by the 13th Amendment, not by Brown v. Board. My bad, thank you. <laughs> like, this is why we have you on. <laughs> uh, segregation, again, was law of the land under Plessy v. Ferguson and Brown v. Board. And secondly, stare decisis itself is not a logical fallacy. Stuff... It is let the decision stand on its own merits. And yes, re-examine it when circumstances change in a way that merits that, but don't just knock it down because you don't like it. That you need to knock it down when something is changed and objectively different. Like Brown v. Board was in a different time and a different circumstance than Plessy. And it was, you know, the very different world almost 60 years later, and that's why that was, you know, knocked down. I'm sure some, you know, it, I'm for sure you'll find somebody on the internet that said, oh, they should have never overturned Plessy. And it's, I'm sure they, they believe that and, you know, they do whatever else. But that in and of itself, I don't think is the fallacy. The fallacy is that we don't like this and, you know, we think the decision is bad and therefore, uh, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200, go directly to jail. Uh, your decision's bad, go home. But I also, I think that the use of the draft opinion as a weapon, it, because that's what they're doing, they're weaponizing it. They're weaponizing the potential uh, votes, I think is a very interesting but dangerous precedent as well. I think that it could very easily change a swing vote, a very like uh, moderate right. I, I haven't even looked and seen. I, is there a list to see who was uh, voting on it? There is. Basically, everyone who's who's not um, Roberts is affiliated. Okay. I, I don't think he had his name officially down. But other than that, it was right. a clear split left, right, for, against. Right. That's what I thought. But again, if somebody's outside your house and they're angry and you know they don't have torches and pitchforks but they have the modern equivalent that that is a that is a dangerous precedent that is not how we should be i think pushing these people to make better decisions i think that delegitimizes the court as another political institution it has become that sadly a lot most of the time the court has been more politically detached of course, again, like I've said multiple times now, the court has its own political leanings and it has its idea, ideology and how you have to have ideology to interpret the laws. But 
to use it as, again, a political weapon and a hammer to knock down things you don't like and is dangerous. I will echo what Justin said. It is Mother's Day, so I'll take a second to say, hi, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. I hope you enjoyed the cake that I got delivered to your house. You might never hear this, but I love you so much, and you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. Now on to my angry part. Um, I have not lived in an America without Roe v. Wade. None of us has. But I have lived in a country that does not have it. That's my basis. Besides Roe v. Wade's direct implications for the lives of the majority of the American people, aka women, um, I really do not care about anything else at this moment. Like, I don't care about the privacy of the court. Sadly, I don't care about these justices getting doxxed. Very sorry for you. Sorry that happened. Whatever. I really do not care. I don't care about what was happening in the court or who leaked it or what's going to happen to them. I really could care less. And I definitely, definitely do not care a bunch of about a bunch of cowards who are sitting in that building who are too busy hiding behind a book instead of actually looking to what's happening outside. I do not care right now because I'm, I'm really, really way too busy caring about what will happen after the decision is made and what, what happens today. Because, and, and even though, and I think the fact that people in this call are very representatives, <laughs> they're demographically very representative of the people who actually made this decision in the Supreme Court. Um, besides, and believe me, the iron is not lost on me, Besides the fact that because of my privileges that I might never have to face the direct implications of this decision, I will have to live in a country that will. And right now, that's all I'm focusing on. And so today and whenever the decision finally drops, uh, we will mourn. And then tomorrow we will fight. That's it. All right. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight, uh, ability to correct people when they're wrong, including myself. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, remember, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on our social medias at Between the Liars to stay updated so that we let you know when we have great guests like Justin. Uh, we've got a special reunion episode coming up, hopefully joined by Austin. We'll see uh, for our one year anniversary here in a couple of weeks. And if you enjoy this show, uh, give us a five-star review and let us know uh, why you enjoy what we do and how we can make this show better for you. All right, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Goodbye for now. <laughs>